Jesus Christ. This has to be the most special week in Christian experience, and we do invite you to take it all in and bring a friend with you, especially on Easter. For those of you who are visiting with us today, we'd love for you to just take a gift from us. It's called The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. It's a very interesting explanation of the resurrection, why we think it happened and why we think it's important. You'll find those right outside this side door available to you. And inside, there's a little schedule for Holy Week, including Easter Sunday. For those of you who are members, you may take one, too, if you give them away. As I told you last Sunday, if you're a member and you take one, you don't give it away. You're going to get the cold I've had for the past three weeks. You're going to get it. Uh, <clears throat> but if you take one as a member, we want you to take one. And we want you to give it to a friend. And we want you to invite your workmates, your neighbors, your friends to come celebrate the most important event in the history of the world. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ next Sunday. So let's let's enjoy it. Try to drink it in. I told someone earlier today, Easter is just too big for one day, (laughs) but we'll do the best we can. Now, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. You may say that's a strange place to turn on Palm Sunday. Well, here's the reason. All the events of Holy Week basically take place in Jerusalem or right around Jerusalem, beginning with Palm Sunday. I'd like for us to ask the question this morning, what's that all about? What difference does that make to you? And I want to suggest to you it makes a huge difference. Now, we don't always understand what difference it makes. As a matter of fact, uh, on the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, as the children were waving their palm branches and the men were taking off their cloaks and putting them down for the king to walk over their cloaks as royalty, they really had no idea what Jesus had in mind. Now, they had something in mind. They thought that maybe this was the Messiah, the king that was going to come to deliver them from the Roman oppressors. And as we know now, Jesus had something quite different in mind, very different in mind. And we can speculate about what he had in mind. But it seems that at least he had in mind what we're going to be reading right now about Jerusalem and its ultimate state, what he came to accomplish for us, a real city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. Abode of peace, Shalom, Salem, Jerusalem. And he came with this in his mind. This is what he wanted to accomplish. And this is what he's accomplished. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 21, beginning with verses 1 through 4. Let us first pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess this morning we do not understand everything that you do and say and certainly the things that you think. But we are grateful for the things you've revealed to us and pray that they may be treasures for us that we store up in our hearts upon which we ruminate and which changes our lives. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Revelation 21, verse 1. Hear the word of God. This is the Apostle John who says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven And the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 22. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Dr. Paul Turnier was a physician in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, in the last century. And after he had practiced medicine for a few years, he began to notice a recurring phenomenon. And that is that his patients who had physical problems, he would treat physically. And yet they would continue to have problems, not because there was a physical malady. And it led him to great interest in the things of the emotions of psychology. And with that interest, he authored many books, most of which I think were published in the 60s, on the issue of integrating psychology and a person's faith. For he came to understand that our well-being, actually even our physical health, is in many ways dependent upon our psychological health and our spiritual health. While he was authoring these books, one of the books he drafted is entitled A Place for You. Some years ago, I read that book and was arrested by it because what Turnier was saying was that our emotional lives, which are connected to all the rest of our lives, are indeed connected to places. He said, you know, human beings are spatial people. Now, he's not a southerner. He wasn't saying we're special people. He was talking about the fact that we live in space and are connected to the space in which we live. And he gives a number of illustrations of this. We could think about it in our own day. Some of you maybe have been to Boston and traveled the the Freedom Trail. And you go into the old North Church and there Paul Revere was given the signal. And you go to the old South Meeting House and all the events that happened there and Many places in Boston where you see the cradle of of our civilization in this country, at least European American civilization, was begun. And there's a significance to the place. You go to Bunker Hill and you recall the battle there. and There's a real significance. I'm standing on the very ground where this happens. Uh, If you go to Washington, D.C. or or Monticello in Charlottesville or you you go to Mount Vernon, uh, uh, Washington's home, and you have the same sense of Civic, sacred space. And the same would be true with national tragedies. If you go to Dallas, you're interested in the very place where President Kennedy was shot. Or if you're a Memphian, of course, you go to the National Civil Rights Museum. And you go to room 306 in the Lorraine Motel. And you remember, this is sacred space. And you can hardly go there without dissolving into tears. Because in that space, we remember certain events and important ideas and concepts Revolutionary thoughts. And so space is important to us. It's, it's especially true in our homes. Uh, many of you have traveled back to childhood homes 
How many of you, can I just see a show of hands, have gone back to a previous home in which you live? Would you just raise your hand? A lot of you have previous homes and you've gone back there. You know why you went back? Because your soul in some ways is connected to the space. And you know the feelings that you have when you go up. If, if that bedroom still exists, some of you are so old, maybe they just tore it all down. But some of you still have your child at home still there and you go up to that bedroom and you want to go up in the attic and see where you carved your name if it's still there. And you remember the events of your childhood. It's just amazing the emotions that flood over you. Uh, this was true uh, with me just this past winter in January. I was in Boston preaching at Park Street Church. And in that church where the Lord first moved on my heart to go into full time ministry, I could point out the very pew where I sat when God was working in my heart. And my daughter Mary happened to be with me. So I made her go down with me 15 miles south of Boston to Quincy, Massachusetts, where we lived at the time before she was even born. But she was very patient and endured it all. As I took her to our old homestead and showed her where her older brothers played in the little front yard and on the on the decrepit old front porch. And I told her about the policeman next door and the crazy man across the street. And and the mother and the father were the four daughters who were our babysitters on the next street and drove her by that house. But we just sit in front of the house and just. Sit there and just look at it and just remember the place where so many important things happen. They said, OK, you got to see where we went to church. And this is the way we walked to church up this big hill. You walked up this. Yes, walked up this with two babies in carriages. And then we walked down this hill and then came to another street and walked, turned left and turned up this hill. And up on that hill is the little Presbyterian church. And this I could take her into there and show her the very pew where God first began to work on my heart as an adult. And take her into the room where I was taught the word of God in Sunday school and take her to the Fellowship Hall where I made so many friends and where those Prince Edward Island immigrants became surrogate parent, grandparents to our children. And all of the flood of memories that come over us, it's especially true in our homes and it's true in our church. And I notice that many of you sit in the same pew every Sunday. And when you're gone, you're noticed. Your pew's empty. That's the danger of it all. The preacher notices. Dick DeWitt used to know exactly who was absent because he knew exactly what an empty pew seat meant. I'm not that good, but I do notice you sit in the same place. Are you just creatures of habit? Not only. Something's happened to you there. And you go back to that old pew because God met you there. What is it that you experience there? It's a place for you. It's your place. You belong there. And you have a sense of belonging and acceptance. What is it they were experiencing through these places? Well, I'd like to suggest four things. We accept we experience acceptance when there's a place for you. You recall being accepted. We experience God's presence. God's presence an encounter with the deity in that special place for us, a private place with us and the Lord and a place where we've experienced community because As the old Jewish philosopher Martin Buber used to say, God's presence does create human community. And so we experience his presence. We experience comfort there. People care for us. And we recall being comforted and helped. And we recall safety and security. Now, some of you are saying you must have had a whole lot better childhood than I do because my places are all broken. And, of course, they often are. And what Turnier says is that we have many broken places in our lives which lead to broken lives. And God is about the business of mending our broken places. 
Dear friends, that's what it means for Jesus to come into Jerusalem. Because if I were to ask you this morning, what is Jesus' special place for himself? You may think, well, the carpentry shop surely had to be one of those places. Or the little place in the cave or the hut where he lived in Nazareth surely was his place. There may have been many places along the Sea of Galilee that were his place. But the Bible shows us where his preeminent place was. And it came about very early in his life. By the time he was 12, you could see what kind of concerns that he had. Here's what Luke tells us in the end of chapter 2. He says that as was their custom, the Jewish people three times a year would go to Jerusalem, especially every male who was 12 years old or older. So Jesus and his mother and father went to Jerusalem for Passover because they would go there three times a year for the major feast. Passover was one of them. And so Mary and Joseph and Jesus went there. And when they departed, <clears throat> normally you would depart with your clan. You may have a few donkeys. Most people walked. But you'd go with Aunt Martha and Uncle Jack and grandmother and grandfather. They'd be the ones on the donkeys. And everybody would go together as sort of a tribe or clan. And when you got to be 12 years old, you're a preteen. You don't want to be with mom and dad. You want to be with other people. So Jesus was assumed to be with an aunt or an uncle or a close friend within the clan. And Joseph and Mary got a long way toward Galilee from Jerusalem when they realized, where's Jesus? He's not to be found. And they were ticked off. They go back to Jerusalem and it's no small place and they're trying to find their son. Now, I have to admit, I've done this before as a parent and it was not my child's fault. It was mine. I left him at church. <laughs> and there's a little four-year-old Lizzie sitting in the front yard wondering where her Father, absentee father is. You've probably done it too. Come on, you've done it. But Mary and Joseph did it. It was Jesus who did it. It was Jesus who decided to stay. And and Mary came in, saw him talking among the rabbis. Jesus was asking the rabbis profound questions. They were all the rabbis were amazed. Mary interrupts the conversation and says, "Where have you been?" She said, "How could you do this to your mother and father?" She said, "We've been searching for you everywhere, just like a good mother." And Jesus said, why have you been searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? There was place for Jesus. It was preeminently the temple in Jerusalem. And on Palm Sunday, you noticed at the end of our text today, Jesus enters the city that he cares so much for. And he goes straight to the temple. And what does it say that he does? He looks around. Why? The place of his youth. The place of acceptance. The place of meeting with the deity. The place of comfort. The place of security. Among other reasons, Jesus just looks around and the flood of memories comes over him. How many of you have been to Jerusalem and you've ascended the Mount of Olives and you've gotten to the crest of the mountain of Olives and you've looked over and seen the Temple Mount? How many of you have had that view? Would you just raise your hands? Do you know some of the feelings that you have flood over you when you see that? You've already been coached before you get there. This is the place from which the king of Salem, Melchizedek, came to meet Abraham. And Abraham bowed down before him and rendered him a tithe because he was the forebearer of the priest after the order of Melchizedek himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It was not too long after that that Abraham is commanded to take his son Isaac and offer him up as a sacrifice, befuddling Abraham and almost everybody since then. Abraham takes him to Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. And there the hand of the angel stays the hand of Abraham from slaying his own son. But some centuries later, the hand of the angel did not stay the hand of the soldiers who pierced the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was slain as God's one and only son on that city, Mount Moriah. And you've been coached to understand that it was there that David came and defeated the Jebusites in the year 1000 B.C. and took control of that city and became the city of David. Why did he do so? Because God had promised these slaves as they traveled through the wilderness that they would have his presence with them and that he would establish himself on his holy hill. And David was determined that there would be a place where God would live among his people and be established in worship. And although David was disallowed from building that temple, you know that Solomon, his son, built it, built it gloriously. And the people would come at the festivals and they would stream into Jerusalem. And Jesus would look over that temple mount as he ascended the Mount of Olives and he would be remembering all these things. And then, of course, he would remember the tragedy of when the people of God disobeyed the Lord. He would exile them out of Jerusalem and destroy it, which is what he did in 586 B.C. But he left them a promise that I will return you to this place, a place for you. I will return you to this place from which you're being exiled. And sure enough, 70 years later, in 516 B.C., there's the second temple built by Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. And the next century, Nehemiah comes in the 5th century and builds the wall around Jerusalem to protect it and make it safe. And then, of course, we know how in the 4th century, the Greeks rose to power through Alexander the Great. And in the second century B.C., they came and desecrated the sanctuary. But it was the sons of Maccabee who came and restored the temple. And thus we celebrate Hanukkah every winter of every year to remember that the temple was reestablished as a holy place in 187 B.C. And then in 64 B.C., the Romans come and Herod the Great rebuilds the temple and builds a huge edifice around the old second temple. And now it is absolutely glorious. And every time Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives from the age of his youngest youth till the age of 33, he looks down upon that mount. And he remembers that it is there that God has established his presence. It is there that I am accepted. It is there that I'm comforted. It is there that the people of God see themselves as being safe. And Paul Turnier says this is reflective of human beings deepest longing. Inside each of our hearts, we have a longing for this sort of place. This is the way Turnier puts it. He says, what is this place that all people are looking for, consciously or unconsciously? I believe it is the place of perfection, which, in fact, does not exist in this world. A place that will give real security and protection from disappointment. What is the meaning of this nostalgia for perfection? which some admit and others hide, but which is inevitably there in every man and woman, boy and girl. It is our homesickness for paradise. The place we are all looking for is the paradise we have lost. The whole of humanity suffers from what we might call the paradise lost complex. And so isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, with all these feelings and emotions, loving the people, he breaks down in tears. We're told he weeps over Jerusalem. 
And isn't it odd that by Tuesday of Holy Week, he is denouncing Jerusalem. He condemns that city. And ever since then, it has no longer been the preeminent place of the presence of God, and it never will be again. He has condemned or cursed the city. Isn't that strange? If this is the longing of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the memories that flood over him when he goes into the city. But on the other hand, we find in our text today that what Jesus has condemned, he only condemned that the old may be gone and the new may come. For there is a new Jerusalem, a vision in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is a reality of the future that he has come to provide. And my dear friends, this is exactly what you and I have to do. For we have our old haunts and our old places and our emotional connections to a lot of things in this life. But what Jesus does surprises us always because he will cancel and destroy and sometimes even condemn the old haunts and the old places because they're broken. They're shattered dreams. And he comes to replace the shattered dream and the broken places with a real place that's alive and to which we shall be attached forever and forever. Look at our text for this morning as we take about five or six minutes to see the meaning of this new place that Jesus came to provide. In verses 1 and 2, what do you find? You find a place of acceptance. We found, as Turnier says, that everyone must have the implications of this place. We must know that we're accepted. Would you please look at these verses? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We are not only accepted, we are considered beautiful in the eyes of God. What is this new Jerusalem? It's the people of God, and He takes great delight in us. I know that many of you have been to many weddings. I have too. And I've stood right in this place. And I've seen many brides in their whites come down this, this aisle. And I've seen the hair stand up on the back of the neck of many of the grooms who would stand here. Seeing that beautiful woman come down the aisle and thinking, you know what? When this party's over, we're going to have a lot of fun together. We're going to have a life together. She is beautiful. She is radiant. She's in her absolute glory. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is the way that God the Father looks upon you. You say, that must be impossible. I'm not in my whites. I'm not that radiant glory, glorious. I'm an old woman. I'm an old man. I don't have that kind of attractiveness. Oh, yes, you do. Because beauty ultimately is in the eye of the beholder. And the one who beholds you is one who is biased off the charts. Some of you women who had good fathers, you were told over and over again as a little girl, you're absolutely beautiful. And your teeth were sticking out this way. <laughs> and your pigtails were going up this way. And you heard what your daddy said and you went and looked in the mirror and said, you know, I think the old man is beyond reason these days. 
think he's kind of losing it. And he would say it to you again. You say, oh, daddy, you're just so biased. You're just prejudiced. I'm your daughter. That's just my point. God in heaven is biased. He's prejudiced. He's madly in love with you. And he sees you as gorgeous and radiant and beautiful. And such you are because he said so. And he will indeed make you beautiful on that day. You talk about acceptance. You talk about a place. You're going to a place where you are beautiful. And the Father in heaven has named you such. That's what Jesus had in mind on Palm Sunday. Secondly, you'll notice in verse 3, this is a place where we meet with God. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. As you walk out, if you go through the north door, you will see just over your head a citation from the book of Leviticus, one of the earliest books written in your Bible. And it says very similar language because this is relational love language. This is covenantal language. It's the language of the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be with you. You will be with me. You will be my people. I will be your God. And you will have my presence forever and ever without sin. You will be in intimate relationship with the Lord. You know, there are several places in this world where God has dealt with me in a very special way. And when I have opportunity, I love to go back to those places and just be there and just remember and to ask the Lord to meet me again there in that place. You know this? You know places like this? Well, we're going to a place where it will never end, where our intimacy with Him will always be maximum and delightful. So we have a place where we will be accepted, where we will meet with God. And notice thirdly in verse 4, we're going to a place where we're going to be babied. We're going to be comforted, consoled. Would you see what he says in verse 4? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you know what it's like to be babied? Some of you kids, you know what it's like to be babied. Your mother does it for you. Well, I want to tell you something. I'm 55. My mother is 86. And she still does it. Allison and I will go visit my mother, 86 years old. We'll say, Mom, let us take you out for dinner. Oh, no. I'm cooking dinner. And I know what you like. Sandy, can I get you anything? Sandy, can I do this? Sandy, can I do that? And Allison's going, oh, please. (laughs) Sandy, can I turn down your bed? It is embarrassing, I admit it. But I love it. And then my sneering wife will come home with me. Drew, can I get you something? Ben, oh, come here. Just yesterday, she came in with the groceries and gave a little toot on the horn. I'm glad she does. I want to know when she's there. I'm glad to get the groceries. My daughter, Mary, also heard the toot and came out. You should have heard her mother apologize to her for honking at her. You've never been babied like you're going to be babied. Did you notice the Lord Jesus Christ when he walked the streets of Jerusalem and when he walked the dirt roads of Galilee? Did you notice how he dealt with the blind who received their sight? 
Did you notice that when he touched the lame man, he could walk? Did you notice that he put his hands on their ears and they could hear? Did you notice that when they were dead, they rose up? Did you see what the Lord Jesus Christ does to broken people when he gets their hands on them? I'm telling you, the love of Jesus Christ is going to break out in an epidemic when we enter that city and every one of us is babied, comforted and consoled. And you may be embarrassed, but you're going to love it. You're headed for a city whose builder and maker is God. And who made a place just for you? As Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was betrayed, he said, I go and prepare a place for you. This is the place he's providing. This is what he died for. To condemn the old Jerusalem. Because the better is coming. And then you notice in verses 22 through 27, fourthly, we're going to a place where we shall be safe. Protected where we shall be exonerated among all the nations and exalted by the light of the Lamb of God, who is the lamp for the city. And by that light, all the nations of the world will stream in with their treasures and lay them at your feet because you are God's people. And you shall never be invaded by evil. Nothing ever shall harm you again. And all your broken places will be mended into a lovely city called Jerusalem that God has given us. I'm telling you, the saints of old have longed for this through the centuries. And the hymn we're about ready to sing is one that is authored by a man named Bernard. He's known as Bernard of Cluny. Cluny was a monastery that was destroyed in the French Revolution. But a monastery, a Benedictine monastery, that was erected and begun in the ninth, ninth or rather 10th century. Bernard of Cluny was in the 12th century. This Benedictine monastery is what preserved the church in the Middle Ages. They were people who cared about the gospel and who went preaching it everywhere. And Bernard of Cluny wrote a long ode or poem, about 3,000 lines, called On the Contempt of the World. And in this 3,000-line poem, he spoke about his contempt of the world and all of its brokenness and evil compared to the glory that we shall one day share in the new city of God, the Jerusalem. And our hymn translator has extracted a few of those lines about Jerusalem. Because, dear brothers and sisters, you have a future that no mind can conceive, no heart can understand, but which is laid up for you. Because 2,000 years ago, a man whose heart had been connected deeply to his places was ready to condemn the old that all the people may knew, know the new that God has stored up for them. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the new Jerusalem. And as we sing of it, God, take our hearts, connect us to the place of our acceptance, the place of your presence place of our deepest comfort in the place of our eternal security. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.